listening to WPOE, the worst place on earth. From Local 10, Woman Found Dead Near Cemetery in Brownsville. Mr. Kelsey, he used to run this place. First black and bomber of the state. Back when there were uh, lynchings, he'd sneak out middle of the night, cut down the victim, give them a proper burial. Mr. Kelsey, he risked his life those days to give people a little bit of dignity in a world that lost track of itself. All kinds of people buried here since. Above ground graves, they're the real old ones. Now, the city, they want us to move them. But when we asked where they were going, the email chains just stopped. <laughs> you can't move bodies nowhere, especially when people are asking questions about it. Now, uh, I came in early that morning. Somehow, the streets, they were clear. You know when you catch that sweet spot right in between rush hour and crack of dawn when it's just you and the truckers, smooth sailing. <laughs> but then again, you got to watch out for them drunk drivers. That's the one thing. Everybody's headed to work, but I would say about one in 16, and that's just my own estimation from years living here, but probably one in 16 of them is shithouse drunk from the night before. Now, it could be higher. You can see them coming a mile away. I kicked the sauce a long time ago. Used to keep a bottle of Mountain Gay right there in my car. Dark liquor. Ooh, mischievous spirit. Especially when you've been bedfellows for a long time. Still likes to take you off guard. Test your limits. I was swaying in my seat. I remember that. The light was red for far too long. Every time I blinked, it was switching from yellow to red again. And I decided, you know what? I'm just going to go for it. And I made a left-hand turn, and this man was driving an old white Dodge pickup truck with a truck bed filled with a bunch of hens, and he just T-boned me real hard. And I was spinning slow motion for what felt like minutes. Now, they say when you T-bone somebody, it's instantly your fault. So he thought it was him, not even noticing that the light was in his favor, and I was drunk off my ass. And the jolt had sobered me up, but the bottle smashed all over the car. I got out, and I waved at him that I was okay, but there was blood running down my arm. Now, he just passed out. <laughs> white feathers, softly falling all over the place. White feathers stuck to my arm, covered in my blood. Whew. They put me in a program so I wouldn't go to jail. Now, at that point, I was young enough to I would do whatever they told me to do, and I'm grateful for that. My older brother... He was in TGK. Still there. Too many state charges just piling up. My mama, she never got over it. Robbing a liquor store with stolen guns. Drugs in the car. Christmas always made her mad for some reason. She'd never go visit him on Christmas, so 
I had to do it. I'd order him a fruitcake through one of the jail's vendors. Now, Robert, he looked at me like, hell am I supposed to do with this? But I knew he liked it. He always liked fruitcake. Yeah, jail made him hard, though. His eyes gave away stories he wouldn't tell me. Uh, he ate that fruitcake with his hands right in front of me. Scars all over his skin. Fights he barely survived. I love him, but I never wanted to be my brother. That's a hard life. Once you're sucked in. So, I got sober, and I took any job I could. Now, I'm telling you, any job to take care of myself and my mama and my kids. Whew. I met my Marcy at a cookout. She held my hand the first day we met, told me to get in a food line with her. Next thing I knew, she was slapping me on the back, telling me she knew I was no good. Go get her some lemonade. It's as if the first day we met, we were already married. Bossing me around like she could depend on me, playing with my hair. She made me laugh. Something I'll always remember. That woman, she could make anybody laugh. In fact, when she told me she was pregnant, I remember laughing in her face because I thought she was joking. And then her eyes, had welled up. I'd heard her feelings, ruining the big reveal. Twins, she said, and then she started to cry. I just kept laughing because, of course, this would happen to us. We were running around town like two maniacs. As if nothing could stop us. And then, pregnant with twins. All the things. But I was so happy. She couldn't have known, but I was. I kissed her. I reassured her we'd be fine, even though I, I didn't know what we were going to do. But, you know, you figure it out. You got no choice. I mean, my parents could do it with all they went through. I figured we could, too. Now, she had a hard time with the pregnancy. Doctors weren't listening to her. She was feeling lightheaded. Heart rate was way up. I tried not to rile her up during this time, but you knew my Marcy. You know how difficult it is not to rile her up whole body was electricity. A room full of people, you knew exactly what she was feeling without her even saying anything because she could shift the whole energy of that place. Take command without even meaning to. But still, even with all that presence, doctors weren't listening. She was bleeding a lot. They said, wait, nothing they could do. Some women showed these symptoms. Her mama did too. Labor, now that was the last straw. It was a stressful day, to say the least. Twins came early. Her doctor wasn't around. I, I was left in the waiting room for some reason. They said it was too high risk to have me there. But my wife was yelling for me the whole time, so they finally brought me in. Now, our first was breached, so that took time. Once that one was out, the second had the cord around their neck. Ain't nobody going to give me a break today? That's what she yelled, and I remember just... By the way, she said it, the whole room lit up with laughter, even covered in sweat, poop, blood. She was so funny. I tried to kiss her head, and she just swatted me away. You know this is your fault, right? Ha. When she was done, I, I brought one of the twins right to her, and this nice Cuban nurse, she brought her the other one, still yet to be named, just little piles of skin, big eyes, tiny little feet. Screaming like they had no idea why the hell they were even there. And Marcy, she was exhausted, but she wanted to hold them, both of them, immediately. She never looked more beautiful with them cleaved right to her, exalted. 
Now, I remember the baby stopped crying the minute she held him, as if they knew exactly where they belonged, as if they didn't want to miss a moment. Two days later, she was uh, asleep in the living room. We had a very late night, but no sleep whatsoever, so I was letting her rest for a little bit. But nothing was waking her, not even their screaming. That sound could wake anyone up. So I kissed her on the forehead, tapped her on the shoulder, just lightly. Nothing. Then I held up her wrist. She was gone. Doctors say she had a clot that they didn't see, that her uh, blood pressure dropped. She hadn't been monitored, they said, as if it was my fault. As if they didn't send her home and tell me she was fine and her symptoms were nothing to worry about. As if this doesn't happen all the time. My mama and I raised those kids. On our own. Without Marcy. But I still don't touch that bottle. And that's why when these people come over here and ask me where I was the morning I found that woman. I don't hesitate. I remember it like I remember the rest of my life since I was sober. To the T. I remember everything. Now I know it's just another turn God has taken me on, and I don't want to miss a second. God brought me something I needed to witness to make me a better man. And that morning, someone left that woman there on the grounds, and I found her. There was no traffic. I was just trying to remember this song Marcy used to play in the afternoons. <laughs> it was a joke. Some group from the 60s that made everything sound like a soap commercial. She would uh, giggle to herself, washing the dishes whenever the song came on. God bless them, these people have no rhythm, she'd say. <laughs> now, it was in my head, but I couldn't remember the words. I went to the gate at Lincoln Memorial. Me and the boss have the keys, and that's it. The gate's low on the south side, all chain link near the old graves. Well, I guess they figure no one cares about those. We moved them aside for city transport, but now they have nowhere to go, so... We've got these high graves and a low chain-link fence, and somehow that's not a security issue people are worried about. I mean, they're dead. What does anyone care about preserving their memory? Bunch of unmarked graves, mostly from a long time ago. Last few years, people have been coming in, spray-painting, you know, swastikas. You may have seen that on the news. Now I had to go out and power wash and paint, but you know, with some of those old plots, there's no way you're going to remove that paint from the plaster. It's just not coming off. We don't have as many dead local celebrities as the other historic cemeteries do, so I guess that comes into play. Everybody brings up Dorsey. First black millionaire Florida. Owned Fisher Island. Yeah, it's true. Started the Miami Times. But I guess some histories don't always get remembered. Now I was letting in these landscapers. There's an area for them to park so they're not disturbing any visitors or mourners, not that we're ever that busy. It's really just groundskeeping all the time, maintaining the integrity of the plots, making sure nobody or nobody has become a hazard, pruning the trees and whatnot. When I saw her, I thought she'd fallen out of one of the graves, but she, she looked too new, too intact, wearing clothes that one isn't necessarily buried in, but I guess it could have passed. She looked like she was uh, sleeping. Now, I didn't want to call the cops at first because, well, I thought they would think I did it, whatever happened to her. But I called. What else are you going to do? 
And I had witnesses too, I guess. My mama and the landscapers who saw me find her. I mean, the ones that would talk, the ones that were documented and actually stayed when the cops came. The one, the one of the five. Someone could account for me and that was enough. People needed to know she was there. Someone needed to account for her body to give her some dignity. When the cops left, the guys came back and we all went for some subs down the road. My boss gave me the uh, rest of the day off. It's nice, even though, honestly, I'm used to being around dead people all the time. But I guess, considering other things that have happened personal to me and all, I guess he felt bad for me. One of the guys started talking about his daughter, so we all took out our wallets, compared our plastic-covered school photos. Francisco asked me about my oldest, the third. Marcy smiled back at me with this look like, I still got it. And I simply told them, without ruining their day any further, Oh, Marcy. Ah, well, yeah, she's my favorite. The boys returned to eating their turkey and provolone with jalapeno and mayo. I closed my wallet, looked up and out the window. Outside in the tall grass, a woman waved at me till she disappeared. I wrote Leonard, my my mother sent me this story about a month ago now, about um, a body found in Brownsville near the historic Lincoln Memorial Cemetery. Uh, and I had been reading up on Florida's histories with lynchings, and that had somehow miraculously, well, not surprisingly, tied into the story of this historically black cemetery um, being run by a man, Mr. Kelsey, who would cut down victims of lynching in the middle of the night and give them a proper burial because otherwise they would have nowhere else to go. So that's where this story came from. Um, an everyday person doing something for the greater good, just because they felt it was right. It was, it was the right thing to do. Um, it's a story about a man in Brownsville, um, a black man who has led his life uh, the best way that he can. And there are many issues within this story uh, that I wanted to touch upon. Um, his wife uh, not being listened to by doctors, um, which statistically is something that occurs way too often uh, with women, especially women of color, black women, not being listened to uh, by their surgeons, by their physicians, and being put into... Um, even greater danger than um, medical predispositions that they they may have or um, uh, ways that they're vulnerable already, uh, which compounds the issue. Um, I wanted to talk about uh, the local um, prison system and how men exist uh, within a world of cycles of incarceration uh, for petty crimes. Um, now, mind you, all of these themes were things I was writing about before this all erupted. And it's not to say that this hasn't been going on for hundreds of years. But uh, now the story uh, has a different context and is extremely um, uh, relevant. Um, 
Yeah. So uh, we decided to uh, perform it as we perform all of them. And Caleb performed it not as a black man or as a stereotype or speaking for anyone, but as a man. Um, as we discussed, someone who had moved, their family had moved from Louisiana to Northern Florida. Uh, and he told the story within his truth, which I thought was a great performance. Um, very truthful and vulnerable. Um, yeah, it's, it's, this is where we are now. And, uh, luckily enough, we're talking about issues that we never have before. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm glad that for whatever reason, this is the time for the story. And, uh, now we're telling it and, and we're talking about it. I think we've been reflecting as a group as far as how, you know, we can continue to work um, on ourselves and on how we continue to tell stories uh, with our platform and engage with our audience. And it's been, um, yeah, a moment of reflection and a moment of action. And I'm, I'm proud of, of Miami for, for what's been going on in our streets and the conversation that's been happening. So, you know, we, we took, uh, I guess a two week break. Yeah. Um, we were set to release this episode two weeks ago and we all agreed that we just felt like it, it was important to kind of pause and not flood the airwaves with our nonsense for a moment and, <laughs> and, and let, let other people kind of, speak and and you know we took that moment to kind of listen to what was going on and we we spoke a lot about this episode because it was the ep- episode that we were going to release anyway this isn't something that that uh that just that you wrote um for the moment in the sense that like no. you wrote this <laughs> before floyd and before everything kind of uh exploded um so we kind of took a step back and and uh, talked about what we wanted to kind of how we wanted to take a step forward back into the into the world with it. The piece itself, I feel like I, there's the moment towards the end which has a different weight now. And I guess it's been an issue for a very long time, given the nature of policing in this country and the history of it. But the moment where Leonard is reluctant to call the police, despite what he's seen and having done nothing wrong. And this suspension of, well, he doesn't think anyone will believe him. There's a concern that he could get tangled up in whatever went, uh, down there. And, um, he kind of goes recedes back into his mind into these painful memories of trauma. Um, and I appreciated the telling of the story. Um, Cause I feel like it's, it happens a lot in Florida and the South where somebody you don't know begins a story and then just kind of goes into all of it, <laughs> you know? Um, so you get to have a moment of reckoning with this person. You get to meet a stranger and hear, some of the mo- their most intimate fears and desires, and I think that's what this podcast was about. So, um. so I I came across this um, 
this old interview from I think 1963 of James Baldwin um, for, uh, from something called the Florida Forum, which I think still exists. I think they still do it on NPR or something um, in Miami, and uh, it was it was it was astounding really to hear the kinds of questions that the all white panel were asking him about violence and looting and and riots and 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 uh you know the black experience in america and 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 how whether or not he thinks rioting is the way that like black people should express themselves it's just like it was just so astounding how uh how how the 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 conversation just like rolls on and on and on like there's it's it's as if as if those events from the 60s didn't happen at all you know um and i just felt like it would be interesting to hear that now as part of this conversation dragnet normally seen at this time We'll be seen tomorrow night at 9.30. Now stay tuned for Florida Forum. WCKT News presents Florida Forum, a weekly examination of topics of interest to the people of South Florida. This week's guest on Florida Forum is novelist playwright James Baldwin. Now sitting in for the vacationing Don Fisher, here is your moderator, Tom Miller. Good evening. National attention has been focused on the problems of the American Negro for the past several weeks. Major civil rights legislation from President Kennedy is now before Congress. Huge demonstrations have been held across the country. Violence has erupted in many places. Last week on Florida Forum, we discussed the racial situation with Governor George Wallace of Alabama, who tried unsuccessfully to bar the entrance of two Negro students to the University of Alabama. This week, we have invited author and playwright James Baldwin to express his views in this growing controversy. Mr. Baldwin is the best-selling author of several books that reflect on racial conflict. He has offered his intellectual and moral support to the cause of the American Negro. And tonight, he has interrupted his schedule in Puerto Rico, where he is writing a play to answer questions from our panel and studio audience. Questioning Mr. Baldwin tonight will be WCKT newsman Al Dempsey and Dr. Charlton Thibault, chairman of the History Department of the University of Miami. There will also be questions from our studio audience after this message. To begin tonight's program, we'll ask Mr. Baldwin to state briefly if he feels the racial conflict in Alabama and Mississippi could happen here in Florida. Well, from my, in my view, which is the view I think of most American Negroes, or the experience of most American Negroes, the situation in Alabama and Mississippi, which is spectacular and surprises the country, is nationwide. Not only could it happen in Florida, it could happen in New York or Chicago or Detroit or anywhere there's a significant Negro population. Because until today, all of the Negroes in this country, in one way or another, in different, different fashions, north or south, are kept in what is in effect prison. In the, in the north, one lives in ghettos. And in the south, the situation is so intolerable as to become sinister not only for Mississippi or for Alabama or for Florida, but for the whole future of this country. 
white people are surprised, I think, at the vehemence of, of Negro feeling and the and the um, the depth of the danger. But and I don't think it has caught any Negro by surprise. One has been in a terrible situation for a very, very long time. Now to our panel, uh, Mr. Dempsey. Well, well, why could it happen? Why, why does it have to be violence? Why can't it be something other than violence? Well, and part of the part of the reason that I'm, one is doing one's best to avoid violence, but one of the reasons that it could happen that way is because for so long, for a hundred years, the American Republic in general has ignored and denied the whole situation that Negroes have operated within. The, to be a source of cheap labor, for example, north or south, is to be, in effect, oppressed. Now, the oppression is bad enough, but the myth that the country has created about the objects of the oppression, the myth about the Negro being happy in his place, is something the Republic has managed to believe. And so that, in addition to the, uh, the fact of oppression, one has also the fact that within the country for 100 years, there's been a way of life occurring in the country, which most of the country knows nothing about. And this is reflected, for example, in the way Negroes talk to each other. It's a kind of language which does not really exist on what we like to think of as a major level of the American culture. Right, but hasn't there been a lethargy on part of the American Negro for that hundred year period too, along with the white supremacy attitude? Um, I don't think so, no. I think that that's part, again part of the myth. One's got to remember, after all, this may sound very rude, but you've got to remember who wrote the history books and toward what end. Uh, I have never known a lethargic Negro. I've known a great many demoralized Negroes. But that is not the same thing. The truth is, the Negroes have been fighting for, for this hundred years to obtain their rights. But in, in, and the country has ignored it. And the technique of the country has mainly been to accommodate it or to contain it, but never really to change the situation. And what has happened in our time, in these last few years, is that it's no longer possible to contain it. And the technique of accommodation has broken down. For the first time, really, the situation is now in the open, and no American can ignore it, as has been true up until, let us say, 1954. All right, well, why did it happen? Why do you think it happened in 1954? Well, the one thing what happened in the South is that when the Supreme Court desegre desegregated schools, or tried to desegregate schools, the South, which until that time had really ignored pleas on the part of the NAACP or responsible Negro leaders to do something about creating a situation in the South. Not, they were not asking for the end of desegregation, but for, to honor the separate but equal clause. And the schools in the South were not equal. Now, this meant, after 54, that the South, which had ignored the necessities on, uh, on the part of Negroes to be educated, suddenly leapt into that breach and started building schools for Negroes to keep the schools segregated. And this meant, in effect, that if I were a college president in the Deep South at a state college, but I had lost my position. I could no longer bargain. I couldn't, I no longer had to go to the governor to get a new dormitory or a new chemistry lab. The governor was all too anxious to give me a new chemistry lab. That meant that I had no longer any effect, no, no power, whatever. I couldn't guarantee the docility of my students. The bargaining table had suddenly disappeared. This is what really happened, I think. Well, that was 1954. This is 1963. All of a sudden we have violence. That's what we're talking about here. Are Negro leaders, and let's consider you one of the Negro leaders, are Negro leaders encouraging conditions of violence? No, no responsible Negro leader can possibly, all the people I work with and know are working as hard as they know how to channelize an energy which they know is there in order for it not to become violence. But to be, to be candid, there is something amazing, really, in, in the fact that it is not 
that Negroes have not been violent sooner. No. There is something very impressive, in my view, in the ways in which Negroes have managed to deal with this, this situation. And um, the kind of discipline, the interior, the interior discipline demanded of an adolescent to sit in and to, and to, and to boycott and to undergo all the, all the things one's got to go and undergo is, 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 is an extraordinary thing. And if, if it were true that this was a new Negro that he'd never been seen before, that would be a miracle. And what has really happened is that these people have been coming a long, long time. And in the 30s, for example, when people like Roy Wilkins from the South, as hobos, trying to organize unions and being beaten and clubbed and murdered, the Republic ignored all this. But every Negro child growing up knew something about it. It is, it is a Republic, I repeat, that has been captured by its own myth of the, of the, of the subservient Negro. And now is surprised to discover that the myth was never true.